0: Hi, I'm Stephanie Lemick and this is Building Trauma-Informed Workplaces. I am so thrilled to have an amazing guest joining us to talk about our final principle of trauma-informed workplaces. We're going to be talking about cultural, historical, and gender issues, and I am so appreciative to have such an amazing expert here to help us walk through this topic and have an amazing conversation. So without further ado, I would love to introduce our guest, Dijanae Robinson. Dijanae is a two-time first-generation HBU graduate of the illustrious Houston Tillotson University in Austin, Texas. And she has worked at Facebook, Google, and a tech startup called Milo. In her capacity as a certified diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist, Robinson has undertaken creation, design, and implementation of microlearnings, masterclasses, panel discussions, and conferences. She's also served as a moderator, a subject matter expert for various panel discussions, including topics like intersectionality, colorism, and Black in Tech. Robinson has also contributed her expertise and a, as a panelist for discussions such as High Value Women in Tech Careers, hosted by Microsoft. Robinson seized the opportunity to address the audience on stage at the Essence Festival of Culture, the country's largest festival in terms of daily attendance and played a key role in leading diversity, equity, and inclusion workshops at the National Conference for the Association of Latino Professionals for America, the largest gathering of Latino professionals in the nation. Dijonet is currently in the position of Chief of Staff at RHJ Consulting Group. And most importantly, Dejeuner is a mission-driven professional. So, obviously, we are honored and thrilled to have DJNA joining us. When I talk about someone with credentials, with experience, both personal lived experience and professional experience, we have a, the perfect person to join us for this important conversation. And especially, you know, be more inclusive of differing experiences. I, I think it's important to me to be honest and transparent about my experiences. I am a cisgender white woman. And while I've had experiences of trauma, I've had negative experiences my career, I have not had some of the experiences of traditionally marginalized cultures. So it's really important for me when we talk about cultural, historical, and gender issues for me to be amplifying voices with lived experiences. So without further ado, I mean, I talked about you a whole long time, um, but if there is anything you would like to add, Dijanae, about yourself, your experience, we would love to hear. it. And of course, we're thrilled to
1: have you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Stephanie, first and foremost, for inviting me on your platform. Um, in recognizing where you needed support for this specific topic. So I know we talked about that offline. I wanted to share that here. It's important when we are doing this work or doing work as human beings and understanding the value of allyship and understanding the differences and the different ways that an ally can show up for support and to advocate and to be there. Um for everyone. And one of the main ways that brought me so much joy is when you mentioned that this topic is not an area where you feel like you would bring the maximum amount of value to your viewers. So I thank you for that. In addition, I always like to explain my why. Why did I get into diversity, equity, and inclusion? First, my mission. I enjoy, I love, to facilitate courageous conversations and safe spaces or brave spaces, whichever word you'd like to use that best suits you. I love to facilitate conversations for authentic, gut-wrenching, courageous dialogues. Why do I say authentic? Because we have to be in our fullness and our truth to understand. And I say gut-wrenching, Because conversations, one, as human beings, when we talk about trauma, whether it's intracultural trauma, workplace trauma, diversity, and inclusion, they're not comfortable all the time. Probably nine times out of 10, they're not. And in some social groups, in some network groups, certain dialogues are foreign, but some dialogues are normal. So, I love to create spaces, safe spaces, brave, safe spaces, to facilitate these conversations to also share lived experiences. So, I always like to share that why before I dive into uh, specific topics so folks can just understand where my heart is, where the passion is stemmed from. So, even if there are nuances of opinions, differences of viewpoints, We can all understand that we are striving. The hope is that we are striving for the same end goal. So thank you so much, Stephanie.
0: Thank you. I I love that. I love the call out for gut-wrenching conversations. I I love transparency. I like being honest and upfront. And, you know, some of these conversations are really gut-wrenching. They're really hard. They're really challenging. And so often in the workplace, so often, you know, as a career HR professional, You hear or you even say growth happens in a place of discomfort. And we focus on that so much on an individual level. But it's also really true on an organization, on a team, on a societal level. So when we're not ready to have those really uncomfortable conversations, sometimes really beautiful conversations, sometimes really painful conversations, we're not ready to grow. And we have to be ready to grow because we have to be ready to be better as a society. So I I love your mission. I love how you've described that. I'm so so excited to have you on board for this discussion. So I like to always start when we look at a principle of a trauma-informed workplace trauma-informed culture I love to start from a place of shared understanding. I think it is so helpful for us all to be at least on a a shared definition page and expand our conversation from there. So would love to share with our listeners what it means when we talk about cultural, historical, and gender issues as a principle of trauma-informed cultures. Trauma-informed workplaces seek to acknowledge the prevalence of trauma in our society and build processes and cultures that support everyone regardless of traumatic experiences. A key aspect of trauma-informed cultures is an awareness around cultural, historical, and gender issues that interact with trauma both at an individual and systemic level. Gender cultural and historical or generational experiences influence the experience and perception of trauma societal expectations, power dynamics, and cultural norms associated with these factors can contribute to diverse types and intensities of trauma. Some examples include, but certainly are not limited to, women often facing higher rates of sexual assault and domestic violence, leading to trauma associated with those experiences, differing cultural perceptions and expectations on speaking about or addressing traumatic experiences, racially motivated violence, such as hate crimes and police brutality, systemic racism, prejudice, and other acts of hate, historical trauma resulting from collective experiences of racism, such as intergenerational trauma passed down through generations, including slavery, colonization, genocide, and forced displacement. Today, we will be focusing on looking at the intersection of trauma-informed workplace cultures and DEI, or diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, and how these efforts work together, but also how they are different and how specifically we need to make sure that diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts are resourced and elevated, separate from trauma-informed workplace culture work, separate from overall cultural initiatives too. And we'll share a little bit more why that's important a little later on in the discussion. So that is my very broad, quick introduction to this principle. Another way I like to frame it, and you all have probably heard me say this more than one time, but I love to think about it. And I think it is so relevant when we're talking about this specific principle. I love to think about each one of us bringing a suitcase with us to work. And inside that suitcase is all of our lived experience. It also includes all of our knowledge, our skills, our education, our abilities, all those things we want people to bring with them to the workplace. So that includes lived experiences of different individuals from different backgrounds, different races, different religions, different genders also includes experiences of trauma in that suitcase. So when we don't ask people and understand and appreciate all the things in the suitcase, how can we expect to leverage those skills, those knowledge, that education that we need to have amazing talented workforces. So that is my quick overview. It really wasn't that quick, but quick for my purposes on a pretty in-depth topic. So really would love to pivot into more about Dejeuner, her work, and her perspective as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and what diversity, equity, and inclusion work really encompasses.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for providing that that definition per se. So at least we are all on the same page and understanding of what it could look like. And as far as diversity, equity, inclusion within the workplace, within the world, within your home, the intercultural piece, depending on the environment that you're in, it can look differently. It can be structured differently. The policies, the procedures, um, the employee support, it has to be structured based off of the internal need. Just like you mentioned, everyone's bringing different luggage to work. So how DEI shows up in a workplace, this is just from my perspective, from the environments that I've navigated as a black woman, as a dark skinned black woman. And I say dark skin because that's the colorism piece in one of my many intersectional layers of my lived experience. So it's understanding, I'm going to play off of your luggage piece. And that was just such an amazing way to describe it because when we sit at this equitable table, the luggage is just the person. There are different individuals sitting at this equitable table. And why do I use air quotes? Because what does it really mean? What does this table really look like? And if we break down simple Google search and we're looking at the executive board, we're looking at the hierarchy of an organization, each organization is going to look differently. And the way in which they operate within their DEI initiative is going to look differently. Who do we need to hear from to ensure if that, those differences, those nuances are actually effective? The employees, those who are impacted by the day-to-day experiences in person and virtually with this new way of living on the macro scale. But even before COVID, there were, companies that were operating on a hybrid schedule who were familiar with Zoom and Webex and uh, virtual conversation, I wanna bring all the luggage to the table and unpack it in this way, because I am not a therapist, to say you need to go to therapy or use any third party source to unpack the luggage in that aspect. So I really wanna be clear on the mission The mission is sharing lived experiences through storytelling and diving deeper than, it's been raining the past couple of days. Oh, how was your Thanksgiving? You know, those surface level kind of routine dialogues, passing through conversations. The first five minutes of a Zoom meeting, how is everyone doing? But if my response is, Today is not a good day for me. From my lived experience, maybe, unfortunately, there was another police brutality or there was another bill passed that didn't serve my community and the masses um, with the support that we need from a systemic aspect. And I say I'm not having a great day. Maybe I need to not be on this call. Maybe I need to take a mental health day. What does that mean? workspace look like virtually and in person? Do I feel pressured because the system is not supported internally to say, you know what? I need a mental health day and I am not going to feel as if my work is devalued. My womanhood is devalued. Maybe part of one of your intersectional layers is you're a mother and you need to tend to your kids. Your kids are being kids in the background playing or crying or life is happening in the background, but because the internal support of an organization does not normalize, hey, can we push this meeting back five minutes? I need to tend to life on whatever scale that looks like is happening right now. Or if it's in person, I'm at work And life is happening. I got a text message. I need to leave a meeting because my values, because of the luggage that I have, may look differently than the person that I'm sitting next to. But it's only through shared experiences, conversations, that we understand that, you know what, from an equitable standpoint, we have to make sure we can support our employees in that way. That, uh, fa- family value is high on some individual's value list. But if I'm not a mother, but I still f- uh, value family, I too, in an equal aspect should feel comfortable enough to say, hey, my father is in the hospital or there's no one to take care of my niece who has autism because I'm the care provider, or I'm the only one who has the financial means to support. So I gave a lot of different scenarios, but it's valuable because all this luggage, everyone's suitcase looks different. What's inside is different and the support, that's what it all boils down to. The support from the managers, the support from our peers, the support from whomever we need that support from, from HR. And that may mean a third party internal resource because I'm having a mental day at work, whatever that may look like. So as I close this aspect of DEI, I could have given a textbook, beautifully crafted example definition, but through my lived experience and the spaces that I've operated in, sometimes academia and practice doesn't always align. And sometimes it's okay to view it from a, this is what is in our organization. So we have to create a different way to go about diversity, equity, inclusion.
0: I love it. I love it so much. And I love, I love that you carried kind of through the suitcase, the luggage example. It's a near and dear to my heart because I think it is, it's helpful for understanding. And I also think it's every, every one of us has one of those bags. I think sometimes in, in conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion, sometimes in conversations about trauma-informed workplaces, we think we're only talking about specific groups of people. We're talking about everyone. And I'll share the story right now because I think it's a a good moment to share it, but it's actually how I started my journey in doing this work. Um, You know, I spent many years when I was doing my in-house HR work, I spent many years supporting construction organizations. And construction organizations are amazing. They do amazing work. They also have some really specific challenges. And I was actually at a construction HR professional conference a few years ago, and there were just such amazing conversations, amazing presenters. And we had this amazing panel discussion about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and in the construction industry. And there is still so, so much work to do. The construction industry is very heavily white and male. And despite a lot of resources, a lot of good efforts, there's still a lot of challenges. And, you know, outside of it being the right thing to do, it's also a challenge as it relates to a talent shortage in that industry. And then the next presentation, right after that, we started talking about mental health in the construction industry. And we talked about how more individuals die by suicide in the construction industry than they do by on-the-job accidents and how it is a leading cause of death in the industry, which is just devastating. But I had this moment where I thought, you know, these are two different conversations, but they don't need to be. Because if we change the conversation just a little bit and we change how we call people in, to conversations about their humanity, their lived experiences, how they can be supported and how they can support others. I just think we can create an important space, a real space for, like you said, those those tough conversations, those courageous, those brave conversations that also can help change the face of the workplace. So, you know, the idea of cultural historical gender issues, how those, those intersect with trauma-informed workplaces, how DE&I intersects is just so important to me. It's really the catalyst for the work I do today. And we keep saying intersection or intersect. So since we have an expert here, I would love for you, Dujanae, to share with us what intersectionality is.
1: Intersectionality was coined by uh, Dr. Kimberley. And when when I discuss intersectionality, I have a workshop that I designed, um, and it's unapologetically embracing the intersections of our authentic lives. And I always like to share this with individuals of all the layers that make up of who you are, your socioeconomic status, gender, age, educationalism, and even weight class is part of a layer. There are so many layers that aren't discussed that are a part of it. Um, Colorism, how light or dark your skin complexion is, is often correlated to privilege how easy or harder your lived experience may be in this world, systemically, um, in the workplace, or even intercultural nuances that we have to navigate in our respective lived experiences. So in addition to intersectionality, there may be some systemic issues that are tied with specific intersectional layers, women, gender pay gap. That's a whole podcast in itself that we can sit and get a room full of experts on the historical piece of what that looks like. Let's even go one layer further voting at one point. We couldn't vote as women add another layer for me as a black woman. So think about that when we're talking about operating in a workspace, two two aspects. One, each individual has their own internal, intracultural layers that they have to navigate at home. What do I mean by that? As a two-time first-generation HBCU graduate, very proud of that, not pride, proud because I know what the representation means for my community and young Black girls, when they need to see folks in different spaces, then society has projected we can only be certain stereotypes, being a first gen and how proud I am of that. Cause I understand the representation. I understand that I made it, but we also can't assume that I've Walk this earth easier, or I'm gonna go one layer further, Stephanie. I'm one of the good ones,
0: yeah.
1: I'm uppity. Yeah. These are all intracultural things that, unfortunately, we as a community do to ourselves. Mm-hmm. But then another layer is the historical piece of years of what we've had to navigate as a community. So in our community, when you're educated, when you speak a certain way, and I'm using these air quotes because they're all stereotypes. Oh, you are talking white. You act white. I've been called, oh, you're an Oreo. Growing up, oh, you know, when we're young, we say some things, but words are damaging. I didn't understand that at seven and 13 and 16 and 20 and 21. But now that I have the academia to match it, I understand the psychological damage that that has on the intracultural. So going back to the luggage, I'm bringing all that luggage now into workforce. So not only did I have to navigate in my own culture, Now I have to show up to work and can't walk in my fullness. And now I have to deal with the microaggressions, the gaslighting. Oh, you're the affirmative action hire as if that devalues Mm -hmm. my worth and who I am. And that's just one employee. That's just one person. That's just one culture of one lived experience. Because what we say all the time, all skin folk and kin folk. (laughs) And what I mean by that is just because someone is the same gender as you, the same, they identify sexually the same as you. They are in the same social economic class. They come from the same culture, the same religion, just because we are the same in those areas does not mean what happened in our home is the same. There are nuances. So we bring that to work just because we all work in the same organization does not mean our same workplace experience is the same. So what do managers do? What does that look like? How do we support all the intersectional layers? Well, of course, ERG Mm -hmm. support groups. Are valuable, but does it stop there? I one layer further, a third party resource. So I know, I know I'm on a tangent right now, but I'm really giving the not complex but complex examples of what a workplace of true diversity, equity, inclusion can look like. Do we have a third party resource? Because we can't just look at, well, we have employee resource groups. Well, we have our marketing team and we made sure that visually it was diverse. Mm -hmm. But when something goes wrong, when an issue occurs at work, how does that support look like from a cultural standpoint, from a gender standpoint, from a um, sexual orientation standpoint? from a trauma standpoint. So we can't just handle the ERG, which is, uh, you know, the cultural piece maybe, because you want to connect with other individuals who operate from the same cultural aspect, but that's not trauma. That doesn't take care of the trauma. It doesn't. So in closing on intersectionality, what that means how it shows up it shows up differently in each organization and back to the root the core the mission we won't know until we have conversations we won't know. ask questions and i leave this if the environment is not safe for the employee to speak up then the intracultural workplace trauma is deeper than we think, and I say we as a specialist, because we all can find ways to help grow, elevate and support.
0: My mind is going about 8 million different directions and I love it so much. I start with safety when I speak about trauma-informed workplaces, because without safety, just thinking about as human beings, without physical safety, without psychological safety, which is so often what we're connecting when we're talking about this work. We can't do much of anything else as human mm-hmm. beings because we are hardwired to seek safety. Mm-hmm. And safety is imperative, and without it, you're right. We we can't do this work. And your 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 you know beautiful definition, beautiful explanation of intersectionality reminded me of a conversation I had earlier this season with Samreen McGregor. She wrote a beautiful book called Leader Awakened, um, you know, really talking about trauma and how it shows up for leaders. And she talked about how the word stupid Mm. became triggering for her because of her childhood, because of her lived experience. And let's, you know, let's all take a moment and reflect on some of those words We heard growing up or heard repeatedly in our, you know, in our lives, you know, you shared a few, Dijoné, that those words, maybe in a regular conversation, a regular day in the workplace, could be pretty harmless. But because of lived experience, because of that suitcase, those words are not harmless anymore. And that's what gets to the perfect point you made. We have to ask, we have to have these conversations. So we're creating that space for people to say, hey, this doesn't work for me. This isn't, this isn't how I can operate. I need space, I need time. It's, it's just so powerful, it's so important. And sure, it's a lot of work, it's hard work, this is a journey, but it is worthwhile on every level, from the business aspect, from the personal aspect, from the right thing to do, societal aspect.
1: To piggyback on the aspect of it's gonna be work. Yeah. It's not easy because there are layers on layers of viewpoints, lived experiences that have to be factored in in the operations of business. Mm -hmm. If it's not in the foundation, you're not gonna see it through every crevice, every crack in an organization. And I always give the example of um, a horse and I call them cultural blinders. But we know that the hat that that a horse wears and for folks who don't know, it's called a blinder, right? If you've never seen a horse, I, I encourage you to Google just blinders and horse. So they have the hat on the blinder and their eyes on the peripheral, on the side, they're usually most times are covered. Why? So they're not easily spooked. They don't get distracted on what's um, on the sides of them. And so that they can stay focused on the path that's right in front of them. I switched it up and said, okay, to me, those are cultural blinders. Yeah. I want to remove the cultural blinders. So we're aware of who's around us, what's around us, the different lived experiences are around us. And I'm in a space where I can admit, you know, when we're growing up, sometimes all you have is tunnel vision. I only know where I was raised. I never left the state. These are just examples. I've never left my city, my small town. I've never been to the East coast. I've never traveled outside the country. All I know is what I've been raised to know. But I can admit that when I started opening up, taking off my cultural blinders, it created the sense of empathy for folks and individuals that I never would have thought that I would relate to. And we couldn't be any more opposite, any more opposite. And it doesn't mean all marginalized groups have to understand each other, all non-marginal, it doesn't mean that. Okay. But if we can sit and understand this is gonna be hard, but it's necessary and we can evolve, we can grow. People make the policies and the procedures so people can change. The policies and the procedures. If this was easy, Stephanie, you and I wouldn't have jobs. Let's just—I know. Let's just keep it on.
0: We'd be on a beach somewhere sipping a drink.
1: Exactly. All the good work stuff. Exactly. It, we wouldn't. We would be out of work. We wouldn't. We would be doing something else, talking somewhere. Exactly. But we wouldn't be having these conversations. And I say that with so much passion and so much hope of, you know. Let's just try to do it differently and see what it is. We have the data. <laughs> the, the data is there. What are we afraid of? What are we holding back? Is it, and I'm going one layer further, Stephanie, is it power? Bring it. Yeah. Is it money? Depending on your lived experience, your response is going to be different. And I facilitated dialogues in rooms where I was the only one when we talk about diversity to where I had to understand that they don't know what they don't know. Now, who is they, Dijanae? Whomever believes DEI is not important or valuable, yeah. but also yeah. respecting their viewpoint, not condemning and not making folks feel less than because of a difference of an opinion. It's not my job as a specialist to come in and change your belief, your religion. But if we start having conversations, you'll realize that folks are more similar than we give each other credit for. Yes,
0: 100%. I love Anyone who's been listening to me knows that I love to talk about power and power dynamics because I think there is so much there. I think there's so much there to unpack. I think it informs so much of how our society operates, how we operate. And I love that point you make, you know, what is it? What are we trying to uphold? What are we trying to get by not having these discussions? And I just finished this phenomenal book by Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. She is the California Surgeon General, and she has done a ton of just groundbreaking work as it relates to adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. And really ACEs gets to the point of childhood adversity, childhood toxic stress leads to serious medical imp- implications throughout our lives. And there's a very interesting, you know, 10 questions, 10 questions you can do for yourself, for, you know, a loved one, for your own child and understand, you know, what's your ACE score and how that interacts with your health. Um, And it's been well-researched, well-proven. And there's this beautiful story Dr. Burke Harris tells where she is working in a very marginalized, very poor community in San Francisco. And it is typical racially diverse, immigrant, poverty community. And they frequently are talking about these challenges, these tough things happening in their childhoods. And she gets a lot of pushback from some people in the community, pointing to ACEs as another way to other marginalized communities. Then she tells the story about a kind of traveling dinner party she had with these, you know, very prestigious, very educated, very privileged women, predominantly white women. And when she introduced the concept of adverse childhood experiences, of ACEs, all of those women raised their hands and said, Yes, I can check off that list. I have ACEs, I had childhood adversity. Our community responds by hiding, by upholding you know, a viewpoint of niceness or we don't talk about those certain things. And so that's why I think intersectionality and talking about these different layers is so important because a community being willing to talk about really hard stuff may make it seem like it's more prevalent. But when the truth is, that actually might just be better support. That community may actually just be better at peer support because they're willing to have those gut-wrenching conversations. That's why I think it's so important and so interesting and I love talking about traumatic experiences as an aspect of diversity that's often overlooked because it's hidden and we can hide our traumas. We don't have to wear them on our person. And That just changes everything.
1: I love how you mentioned, you know, hiding your trauma, right? And I'm just gonna use this example, just because the individual that shows up always smiling, speaking to everyone, on their Ps and Q's, right? They're they're doing their work. You would be surprised what life looks like when people leave the office, or what they're not saying about life within the office. Yes. Because we've been programmed and conditioned to be, I always use this robotic, you know, to go with emotions, to be, um, you know, to push through. And I'll use our layers, it's women, to push through, don't be too strong, but don't be too soft. <laughs> or we we'll go into the weight class as intersection, which has stereotypes and judgment. Mm-hmm. Don't be too large. Don't be too small. Be too small. You know, don't speak up too much, but speak up enough so you're not dismissed. Mm-hmm. The whole pushback, verbiage, terminology, hard to work with, um, those are parts of trauma and they could be defense mechanisms. Maybe I have to. Uh, yes. Because I always got walked over mm-hmm. or from my specific layer, maybe I don't speak up as my emotions are getting me right now. Maybe I don't speak up because I don't want to be the angry black woman. Right. So then I'm walked over. Yeah. Or if I identify in the LGBTQ plus community, maybe I don't disclose that information. Because someone who I work with has a different religious belief than I do. But the workplace environment wasn't created as a psychologically safe space for any of the examples that I gave to show up as our authentic selves.
0: It is. It's so true. I talk sometimes about self-acceptance. And I think for me it's really self-acceptance is in a lot of ways tied into my own kind of personal experiences with trauma and i also think self-acceptance is an important part of growth and development in the workplace because without self-acceptance we're we're like an echo chamber of all of those terrible wrong and accurate unfair stereotypes that show up for us at work. And it is it's just a lot to carry around. And self-acceptance work again, it is it's a journey, but I think it is it's key when we think about psychological safety. Mm-hmm. You have to start with psychological safety within yourself to to really be able to have some of these challenging and and tough conversations so you can be honest about your own experiences too. I mean, I know, DeJanae, you and I talked a little bit about privilege, you know, as we were discussing and, and talking about ourselves and our own lived experiences. And, you know, I spoke about my lived experience being someone who had parents who were teachers, did not know anyone in corporate America, and then, you know, paid for my own school, all those things. And then walking into workplaces and having assumptions made about having a wealthy family, coming from a well educated background, and how much it bugged me. <clears throat> but then when I take steps back and reflect on my own life, my own experiences, recognize that those assumptions, they're wrong, and they undervalue the work I, I've, I've done. They also work to my advantage. And they put me in a position of privilege Ooh. to be in, to navigate spaces and have people assume I belong spaces. And I think that's what's so interesting and so important, is when we talk about privilege, People kind of get defensive sometimes. Understanding your privilege is a tool to better understand yourself, how you show up in the world, and how you can better relate to others who have different privilege, different experiences.
1: Absolutely. And I, I can't wait for, I know we talked about <laughs> another. We've got a part two. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wait to to dive in that because... It's, it's a conversation or piece of the puzzle that is missed or just not talked about enough or not thought about. Because I know when we mentioned it, we got so excited. Yes. Uh, so I can't wait to have that part two dialogue of, of privilege through you know, the lens of diversity, equity, inclusion. And with workplace trauma, just understanding that it's going to take time and this is not something we should rush. And I know we kept looking back to that psychologically safe space and also not assuming that the manager has all the answers. And right. not assuming let's keep it honest. HR may not have all the answers. Yeah. Shout out to third party resources, right? Yeah. Shout yes. out to folks who specialize in this work. Mm-hmm. And does that mean you just bring in a um, trauma-focused specialist for workplace cultures? Does that mean you just bring in that individual? Maybe, if it works for you. Does it mean you bring in an expert to talk about creating psychologically safe space that may work for your organization? Does it mean you bring in a, a specialist who's focused on leadership training? What does it look like? It looks differently for each organization. So I encourage folks who are watching this to one look internally just to see if the organization, if your organization, even has resources to even one know what intersectionality is, to know what diverse equity and inclusion is, to know what workforce trauma looks like, and. Ask yourself, do we have the pillars to support internally? And if you don't, we're all humans. You yep. don't know, don't know. And you got to do an internal audit to figure it out. And from the equitable financial side, yes. How are we investing financially to support yep. our employees, to support our leaders on trauma-informed workplaces and DEI. That's another lens to look look at. So if you don't have those pillars internally, I encourage you to outsource. Mm -hmm. Find specialists. There are specialists out there. And if you want to be inclusive, there are diverse specialists out there as well. Sometimes you have to look in a place you've never looked before. But if your resources aren't diverse, it shows that where we, and I say we because I'm part of the system, where we go for these resources, sometimes we go in the same circle, in the same group of people. In order to get a different result, we have to do something differently. Outsource, challenge yourself. And if you don't know... Ask the people who are who are operating in the day-to-day. Trust me, if you, if you need a third party, I'm just going to gas myself up.
0: Please Call do. Me.
1: <laughs> Call me and I can be one way that your organization can grow and support in the aspect of workplace trauma. And then I may know someone who's a specialist in other areas. And then Stephanie may know folks she is building her network y'all she is (laughs) expanding and i am supportive i endorse what she has said to me and i endorse what she's doing because the first thing she said before she even asked she understood this conversation she couldn't take it to the level that it needed to be taken to so when folks are like well how do we do it well give me the answer there's not one way I always revert back to do an internal audit, hire an organization, a third party who has no ties yes. to the organization. Hire them so that you too can grow in the way, whatever the goal is and be humble, defenseless, True DEI work takes a lot of self-reflection on all levels, and I'm going to say something that may upset people, but it's okay because this is part of the authentic gut-wrenching. Sometimes you have to let people go yeah. Yeah. because they no longer fit the vision of way the organization of the way you want the organization to go. I'm going to say it again for the folks in the back. Sometimes when you do this work of diversity, equity, inclusion and change needs to be made, you have to let those go who have hindered or who will hinder the change. Those conversations are also not easy. But
0: they're so important. Very, very. They are so important.
1: Wish we had like
0: three more hours. And I know we are going to be talking again. And I am just so grateful to you for your friendship, for your partnership. Another thing I'll add, ask people you know for referrals, for the right person, for the challenge you're working on. I know I am doing this work. I know Dijanae doing this work. We might not be the right person and the first thing we'll do is we'll get out a list of people who we think we can help who, who can help you and it's so funny but you know i think you know my experience as an entrepreneur has been way less competitive than my experience in the corporate world so know that you know folks doing this work want more than anything this work to be meaningful so ask for referrals if you're not sure and, and folks are, are more willing. I, I'll include myself. You know, I'm always happy to make a referral, make a connection. So d- don't be afraid to ask. And absolutely that humility is key. Uh, we talk about humility. Humility is key here because no one, no organization is always gonna get everything right. It's not possible.
1: It's not. And I agree with you, Stephanie. Ask. It's okay to not know um, and be open and willing. And trust me, there are people waiting. Yeah. Waiting for someone to say, hey, we need help and we're looking for something. And for folks who need help and may not have a large budget, because everyone's organization is different, there are folks and individuals out there from any aspect. I'm not saying don't pay folks for their expertise from an equitable aspect because that's part of the internal audit. But I understand some organizations, right? If we're talking about how big or small, their budget may not be able, right? But I've seen people leave salaries, jobs that paid them amazing money and took a budget cut because a different size, a smaller sized organization, they had similar values, especially in the aspect of DEI. Yes, but we can't say we don't have the budget. Internal audit and create and make the budget if it's valuable. So I'll leave that there. Thank you so much. I know we're coming up to that hour. And I just want to say one more time, thank you, thank you, thank you for the opportunity Thank you for listening. Thank you thank to the you. audience. I hope you all enjoyed our little Kiki session. I'm trying to lighten it up because it got yeah. real. T- uh, but yes, thank you so much, Stephanie. I truly, truly appreciate what you're doing, and thank you for allowing me to be on your platform.
0: It is an absolute privilege, and I would. It would be. It would be wrong of me to not gas you up a little more here. If anyone you know wants to follow along your work, interested and in engaging with you, or just wants to follow along, uh, you are an amazing thought leader. You know where can they find more information?
1: Yes. So if you follow me on um, LinkedIn, I'll make sure Stephanie she will uh, share that on um, our post um and i will also provide her with my email so you can shoot me an email email is the best way to contact me however um linkedin is another way and i'm here to support you if you're looking for support and i'm also okay if i'm not the best one trust me i got about 5 folks on deck <laughs> who are ready from all walks of life so that's where you can reach me please reach out coffee chats just individual meetings or to be booked because I'm, I'm trying to be booked and busy in 2024. Yes. so That's how you can contact me. Amazing. Thank you again
0: so, so much. And thank you so much to our listeners. Until next time, everyone, be well.